You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Today, we'll be continuing our study of the book of Job in this series called When the Righteous Suffer, and then we'll be looking at Job's final speech. Many people who are familiar with the Bible, who have read the book of Job before, wonder why the book of Job is so long. They appreciate the beginning, the chapters one and two, when Job, his life is described and, and God uh, brings about tremendous loss in his life, and we, we appreciate the end, when Job finally receives some clarity and God brings about a wonderful restoration of what had been lost. But, but why the middle? Why chapters 3 to 37? What's the point of it? Couldn't we condense these 42 chapters into four neat and concise chapters that accomplish the same thing? Well, we certainly could. But then we would miss one of the most important lessons of the book of Job, and that is that it takes time to grieve. The chapters in the book of Job are not neat and concise because pain is not neat and concise. Working through our suffering is not a linear process. It's not just a matter of time before it resolves and dissolves. It can come and it can go at unexpected times. One day you can be fine. And the next day you can be crying on the kitchen floor without explanation or reason. You still believe the same things, at least you think you do. You believe that God is sovereign. You believe that God is good. You believe that God knows what he's doing, but the pain still hurts. And that's why God has given us 42 chapters instead of four to show us what it is like for this suffering man to get through his pain. In John Piper's poetic rendition of the book of Job, he has this one line that I've carried with me since I first read it. He says, there is no haste in grief. There is no haste in grief. Christopher Ashe writes, Job cannot be distilled. It is a narrative with a very slow pace after the frenetic beginning and long delays. Why? Because there is no instant working through grief, no quick fix to pain, no message of Job in a nutshell. Now here in Job's final speech, he proves this to be the case yet again. We're going to hear him say many of the same things we've heard him say before because he is a man who is still lost in his grief. He he hasn't learned the lessons once and for all and moved on. But as he expresses his grief afresh, he, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to lead us yet again to Christ. To Christ, the one who bore our pain and carried our sorrows on the cross so that when we suffer and we will suffer, we can suffer with hope. The title of this sermon is The Final Words of a Righteous Sufferer. We're going to have three points today. First, remembering God's goodness. Second, lamenting God's silence. And third, desiring God's justice. First point. In chapter 29 is Job's most detailed description of his life 
before this book about his life. He takes a rare moment to dwell on the good old days, to to reminisce, and to remember what it felt like to know that God was on his side and to receive God's favor in his life. And so he begins in verses one to five. Job again took up his discourse and said, oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and by his light I walked through darkness as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. It's a beautiful description of what communion with God looks like. The friendship of God was on his tent. But the tragic thing about these verses is that Job is not writing in the present tense. He is writing in the past tense. God used to watch over him, but he does so no longer. God used to light his way in the darkness, but now he is trapped in the darkness with no light at the end of the tunnel. God's friendship used to dwell upon his tent, but now all he senses is God's displeasure and wrath. This is what Job misses most. When he pines for the past, he doesn't think first of the loss of his wealth or his reputation or even the loss of his children. He thinks first of the loss of God himself. He doesn't miss God for his gifts. He misses the friendship of God. He longs for the days when God smiled upon him, when God was clearly with him and for him, when God's blessings were merely a sign that pointed to God's favor. But we as the readers know something, of course, that Job did not. We know that Job doesn't have to speak about the friendship of God in the past tense because the removal of God's blessings did not signal the removal of God's favor. It actually signaled in this situation, it signaled God's delight. Yes. The suffering that Job has faced was evidence of God delighting in him. Job was suffering precisely because God held him up as his finest servant a man who would endure in his faith despite losing everything that he loved. Job remembers what he lost in verses five to 10. He says, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, a picture of of prosperity, the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. And the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hands on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. Job remembers what it was like. He remembers the life of Job before the book of Job. And what he remembers here is how he was respected. He was respected by both the young and the old, the the common man and the noble man. When he showed up, it was like the appearance of a royal figure, like Prince William or Prince Harry showing up. People stood, and they, they showed him respect and deference, and they listened to what he had to say. But their respect wasn't for the reasons you might expect. We, we respect people because of their wealth. 
or their power or their influence or their beauty. They respected him because of how he used his wealth and power to bless others. Listen to verses 11 to 13. He says, when the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it approved because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. What a wonderful thing to be known for, to be respected for, to be respected and deferred to, not because of your beauty or wealth or power, but because of your good works, because you are known as a, a man or a woman who cared for the needy. Now, you remember back in chapter 22, Job's friend Eliphaz accused him of a very specific list of sins. He accused Job of exploiting the poor, ignoring the hungry, and taking advantage of his wealth. And Job, he, he didn't defend himself then, but he does now. He reveals that he was not a man who oppressed the poor. He was a man who served them. He was a man of justice, and he was a man of mercy. In his justice, he delivered the poor who cried for help. Verse 17 uses this imagery of, of he broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. And Job was a man of mercy. Verse 15 says he was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, father to the needy. Job was a great man with a great heart. A, a man who used his wealth and power not for self-indulgence, but in order to bless others, especially those who were broken, needy, and forgotten. Chapter 29 is a picture of paradise. It, it is a a short film on the good life. Job is surrounded by his children. He is prospering in his business. He is respected in the city. He is blessing the poor. He is serving the needy. He was with the kinds of people that Jesus spent time with. Do you see some of Christ in Job? That, that even though Job was a man of influence, he condescended to be with the weak, to be with those who were forgotten by the world and discarded, but not forgotten by God. This is what the good life looks like. Contrary to the popular message today, the good life is not looking good and feeling great about yourself. The good life is a life devoted to worship and good works. And Job fully expected that this good life would last until the day that he died. I mean, why else? Why would God take this away from him? He is doing good. He is stewarding his resources well. Why would that change? And so he writes in 18 to 20, then I thought I shall die in my nest and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. Job is confident that God would bless him for blessing others. Job believes that God would reward, he would reward his good life with a good death. But as we return to the nightmare of Job's present reality, this expectation had become nothing more than a sick 
joke. Remembering God's goodness in the past only served to make his present more bitter. And by the way, that's what always happens when we depend on nostalgia to carry us through our suffering. We can't look to the past to find the hope that we need to endure. The result will only be more grief. The result will only be more bitterness. We must look elsewhere. But before Job does, he laments God's silence, leading to our second point. Chapter 30 brings us, yanks us, you could say, from the peaceful bliss of his past to the dark nightmare of the present. Three times in this chapter, in verse 1, 9, and 16, Job says, but now, or and now. This is what my reality looks like now. And the contrast couldn't be starker. He begins in verse 1, but now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Men used to rise at his presence. Princes used to refrain from talking so that they could hear Job's wisdom. But now young men, men who are younger than him, they laugh at him. Men who come from bad families. Job says that that these young men come from the kind of stock that he would not even set upon his sheepdogs. These men are weak, verse 2. They are lazy, verse 3. They are outcasts, verse 5. They are gangsters, verse 6. These are no good troublemakers. They are rabble-rousers and scoundrels. And yet they laugh at him. They do not show him any respect. Indeed, they make a sport of it. Verses 9 to 10 say, and now I've become their song. I am a byword to them. That is a curse. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Job is so despised by these young men that they sing about him in their taverns when they're drunk. They spit at him at the town dump where he is sitting on the ash heap. And whenever they they want to be vulgar and offensive, they use his name as a curse word. That is how far Job has fallen in the minds of men. He has lost all remnants of respect and dignity. And Job knows why. He, he, yes, he blames these men, but ultimately he attributes it to the ultimate cause that is God. He knows that God is sovereign, and therefore it is God who has ultimately brought this change of fortunes upon his life. He says in verse 11, because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. So Job is a man challenged by his suffering who, despite it, is not questioning his theology. He still believes in the sovereignty of God. He still believes that God is in control. He still believes that nothing happens except through God and by his will. But he's struggling to believe and to hold on to whether God is still good because God is the one who has humbled him like this. Job's third and now moment is in verse 16. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. 
And many of us know and love the old hymn, It Is Well. It is well. The first verse says, when peace like a river attendeth my soul, my, my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But Job knows what the hymn writer meant when he described sorrows like sea billows rolling over him again and again, an endless tide of, of pain and disappointment and betrayal and grief just rolling over him again and again. But he does not know He does not know what the hymn writer meant when he said, it is well with my soul. Instead, he says, and now my soul is poured out within me. He feels as if his very soul is draining out, that he is slowly but surely disappearing. Job describes his days as being full of affliction and his nights as the time when his pain eats away at his bones. He finds no rest. Even the simple act of wearing clothing, putting on clothing feels like it's choking him. And he knows that God has done this. That God has done this. He says in verses, verse 19, God has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. You gotta imagine Where Job is, he is sitting at the town dump on the ash heap where what has been burned because it's useless and worthless sits there in a giant ash heap and he's sitting there and he's saying, this is me. God has made me dust and ashes. My soul's vigor is draining away and I am returning to the dust from which I have been made. And then in verses 20 to 23, Job does something that he has not done since chapter 14. Job stops talking about God and he starts talking to God. He prays and he tells God exactly how he feels. He says, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death into the house appointed for all living. Job cannot understand why God does not answer him. He does not understand why he can cry out to God and receive silence. Not a word of comfort, not a hint of explanation, just silence. And Job believes that he is entitled to receive an answer because it seems like there is a grave injustice here that he has done right, he has lived a good life, but God hasn't. Verses 25 and 26, did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. Job is saying, God, I have done my part. 
I've been with the needy and with the weak, but when I was needy and weak, what did you do? You didn't say anything to me. You did not comfort me. Where are you? Tell me. Now, once again, we as the readers know that Job was missing information that we wish he had. Yes, God may have been silent for that moment, but he would not remain silent forever. Indeed, in a few short chapters, God himself would speak to Job out of the whirlwind. Like a man speaks to his friend. You could count on the numbers of two hands and two feet, the number of people who have heard God speak with their own ears. It is a rare occurrence. But Job would be one of them. Job would be given the sacred privilege of hearing God speak as he finally reveals himself to his servant. Now, as believers, we may not hear God speak out of the whirlwind, but we do hear him speak out of his word. God, yes, yes, God does speak to you today, whenever we want. We can hear God speak. And we can hear his answers to us about why we suffer, about why we live in such a darkened, difficult reality. We can hear God speak about who he is, what he is accomplishing in the world, who we are, and who, what we mean to him because of Christ. Any moment of any day, we can hear God speak and hear God say, come to me, trust me. Know my love. Know that I am holding you in the palm of my hands. God may not tell us all the details of why things happen to us. In fact, God did not tell Job why all these things happened to him. But God did tell Job exactly what he needed to hear, as we will see in a few weeks. And he tells us exactly what we need to hear. Job's final speech ends with a desire for God's justice, which leads to our final point. Job is at a point in his life and in his suffering where he just wants closure. He wants resolution. He wants an end to this painstaking process of asking questions and receiving no answers. He says, if he is guilty, then let him be punished. Just, God, take away my life. But if he is innocent... Let him be cleared of the charges and let him be vindicated before his accusing friends and the laughing public. Job wants justice. And he is confident that if he, if he finds someone who is willing to listen to his pleas that he is innocent, he will be vindicated. All he needs is someone to listen to him. He needs this heavenly witness, this advocate, this mediator that he has written about in the past to hear his final appeal and pronounce him to be innocent. And so he begins with a statement about his personal integrity in verse 1 of chapter 31. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job has made a solemn promise Witnessed by God, not imposed on him by God. This is a covenant he's making with himself, but witnessed by God to not look at a woman who is not his wife with lust. When no one is watching, in the secret fantasies of his 
thoughts and in his heart, he will not allow himself to gaze upon another woman. And that speaks to his personal integrity that Job isn't just a man who does what is right when other people are watching. He does what is right when no one else is there. This comes from what Job spoke about in chapter 28. It comes from the fear of the Lord. It is the fear of the Lord that leads us, empowers us to turn away from evil. Because when you live in the fear of the Lord, you know that you can't deceive the Lord. Your whole life is laid bare before God, that nothing can be done or said or thought that God does not take notice of. And Job describes this in verses two to four. He says, what would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? Job will not let his eyes gaze upon a virgin because he knows that God sees all his ways and God numbers all his steps and God will bring about calamity and disaster if he does that without repenting and without doing something about it. And now the rest of this chapter, chapter 31, Job goes through a catalog of his life, public and private. He combs through the details of his life to see if there's any wrong in him. In this final appeal, in this closing statement before this judge that he hopes will listen to him, he calls for vindication. Verses 5 to 8 are about deception and coveting. Job says if he's walked with falsehood or if his heart has gone after his eyes, which, which is a powerful description of coveting, by the way. When you see something and your heart latches onto it, then he says, let another eat what he has sown. In verses 9 to 12, he talks again about lust and adultery. If his heart has been enticed toward a woman or if he has waited at the door of his neighbor's house, then let someone else take his own wife as their slave. In verses 13 to 15, he talks about oppressing the needy. If he has rejected the cause of his servants, if he has ignored their complaints, then he deserves God's punishment. And interestingly, he describes, he provides the reason in verse 15. He says, did not he who made me in the womb make him, that is, his servant? Did not one fashion us in the womb? Job believes in the inherent dignity of every man and every woman, despite their intelligence, their education, their station in life. He believes that everyone is entitled to justice because they are made in the image of God, even his servants are entitled to justice. This would have been a revolutionary idea in the ancient Middle East at a time when slaves were treated like dirt, like property, like animals. But it is a view that Job held and it continues to be one of the distinguishing features of the Christian worldview. That people are entitled to respect and dignity not because of what they accomplished in life but because of who they belong to. They belong to God. God has made them. The same God who has made princes and kings is the same God who has made 
servants. This is also why Job talks about how he has treated the poor and the vulnerable in verses 16 to 23. He has fed the poor. He has cared for widows. He has clothed the perishing. He has protected the fatherless. He has become a defender of all those who are easily taken advantage of and exploited. Verses 24 to 28 talk about idolatry. If Job Job trusted in his gold, which can be an idol, Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other. Uh, You cannot serve both God and money. He's aware of that. And he also rejects worshiping the sun and the moon. He, He rejects idolatry, false worship. Verse 29 talks about his treatment of his enemies. He says, if I I had rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. It really is astounding how much of the New Testament ethic is captured here in the book of Job. That, That he is aware that God has called him not to hate his enemy, not to repay evil with evil, but to love his enemy. To, to pray for his well-being, to pray for his blessing and not cursing him. Verse 31 talks about hospitality. He says, if the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? He's talking about sojourners, guests who are dwelling in his tent and his servants approaching them and said, are you well fed? Have you eaten meat? Uh, are, are you full? Are you satisfied? Job has been a welcomer of the weak and the sojourner. And then in verses 33 to 34, Job talks about the possibility of him concealing his sin, hiding what he has done wrong. He says, if I have concealed my transgressions as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude, and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors, then let, then let all the curses of God fall upon me. Job knows that to conceal sin is to sin itself. It is not just a sin to do what is wrong, but to hide the fact that you have done what is wrong. That is called hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy when you project yourself to be one thing and you're completely something else in private. And Job tells us why this happens. He tells us why the human heart is inclined to hypocrisy, why we are naturally inclined to hide our sins rather than to confess it. He says, we are afraid of the contempt of families. We stand in great fear of the multitude. We hide our sin because we are concerned with our reputations. We want respect, not contempt, and so we conceal our sin. But Job teaches us in these verses that keeping silent about what we have done wrong is just as wrong as the wrong that we are keeping silent about. And of course, Job is suggesting that he was not one of these people who concealed their sin. He confessed it and he atoned for it. What Job has done in chapter 31 is he has given us a picture of the life lived in the fear of the Lord. A man who has turned away from evil because he has stopped trusting in himself and he has learned to trust 
in God. This is not a sinless life. Otherwise, Job would not talk about concealing his sin. He can only talk about concealing his sin because he is aware of sin in his life. But this is a life without deceit. It is a life of humble confession of sin, a life of careful treatment of others in public and in private, both the needy who are begging on the streets and the servants who are in his own household. It is a life of reverential submission to God. And Job believes that this is how he has lived. He has lived the kind of life that should attract God's blessing and favor. And yet, it seems like he has done it all in vain because no one seems to be listening to him. And so he cries out in verse 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. I'm signing my name on this paper, on this final submission before a holy judge. Let the Almighty answer me. Job is crying out for the final time for an advocate, for a mediator, for a heavenly witness who would speak for him after hearing his appeal. His his cry continues to be, is there anyone who hears me? Can anyone see that I'm innocent? Will anyone up there speak on my behalf before God? and declare that I'm innocent. Thanks be to God that there is. There is one who heard Job, and there is one who hears us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Savior of the world, hears us from heaven. He, he, he looks upon us and advocates for us as the only mediator that we need. But the difference Listen, the difference between the advocate that Job wanted and the advocate that we have in Jesus is that Jesus does not comb through our lives. He combs through his own. When Jesus stands before the Father to speak on your behalf, he doesn't say, look at Ed's life. Look at Henry's life. Look at at Jonathan's life. He says, look at my life. Look at how I have walked without deceit. Look at how I have made a covenant with my eyes. Look at how I cared for the poor. Look at how I welcomed the lost. Look at how I kept my worship pure. Look at my righteousness and give it to him and give it to her. Job may have been blameless and upright, but he was not sinless. He had sin that he was tempted to conceal, but Jesus, Jesus had no sin. No sin to confess, no sin that he was tempted to conceal, no sin to atone by the blood of another. Jesus was perfectly righteous in every way. In his life and in his motivations, in his actions and in his emotions, he was perfect. And when we come to him in repentance and faith, trusting in him as our savior, he gives that perfection to us. He takes the righteousness that belongs to him in the innocent, perfect life that he lived and he credits it to our account so that even though we are sinners before a holy God, we stand before this God as saints. Job didn't know this, which is why he lamented. But we know this and so we rejoice 
And as, as we rejoice in this mediator that we have, this savior who has given to us his perfect righteousness, it makes us live differently. We want what is true of us in Christ to be true of us in our day-to-day living for those who have been declared righteous to actually become righteous. We will make covenants with our eyes not to gaze upon a virgin. We will refuse to walk in falsehood and deceit. We will hear the cries of the oppressed and respond. We will welcome strangers into our homes. We will love our enemies, confess our sins, and worship our God. My friends, this is what the book of Job is ultimately about. It is not ultimately about our suffering, but about the Savior who suffered on our behalf. Yes, this book has given us practical tools in how to persevere through our grief, how to comfort others. It's it's taught us about the importance of listening well, of being slow to speak and quick to listen. Uh, it's, it's, It's taught us the importance of having a right theology of suffering, to not be hasty in judgment, to learn the importance of compassion. It's, it's helped us understand all these things. It's helped us to understand and to expect that even the righteous suffer so that when we receive evil for doing good, we would not be surprised. But at its core, Job is about another righteous man who suffered. An innocent man who was also laughed at, spit upon, and despised. This man... His name has been a curse word for generations. Jesus received the highest honor in heaven and experienced the lowliest humiliation on earth. Jesus is the greater Job. Jesus is the advocate Job longed for. He is the judge Job hoped for. He is the redeemer Job prayed for. And so, whatever you are going through, whatever hardship you are experiencing in your life, whatever betrayals you have experienced, whatever disappointments continue to weigh you down, the book of Job invites you to look at the one that Job did not know, but we do. Because Christ has come, he has lived a perfect life, he has died a substitutionary atoning death, and he has risen from the grave. And he has ascended on high, where he now intercedes on our behalf. Look to Jesus and live. Peace for your soul is not found in looking to the past, pining for the good old days. Peace in your soul is found in looking forward to the best days that you still have with this Savior who died for your soul. Look to Jesus. Trust in his death and his resurrection and find peace for your soul. Let's pray. Father, though we may experience suffering and pain like Job, we no longer have to experience it to the depths of agony like Job because Christ has come. And in him we have hope. Our pain has purpose. We know that you wound us to heal us. How great is our Savior! Let us look to him. By your spirit, give us the eyes of faith to look on him and live, to trust in him, to turn away from evil, and to live 
in the fear of the Lord with joy, thanksgiving, and celebration. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.